Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Fodi, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay? And what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go Beyond the Shelf. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Fodi, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Renee Youngie. Renee is a proponent of intellectual curiosity and human connection with an immense love for our planet. We love to hear that. For over 30 years as a marketing strategist, her experience and and passion has been building and rebuilding food and beverage brands grounded in purpose, something that I think is really important today. After leading Fortune 100 and early health and wellness food service companies such as Coca-Cola and Jamba Juice, Renee moved to the organic and fair trade acai company, Sambazan. At Sambazan, her strategies ensured rapid growth of their triple bottom line business model, which we'll definitely dig into here shortly. She then joined the Bumblebee Seafood Company in 2019 as vice president of corporate brand strategy and communication, where she established the corporation's purpose, feeding people's lives through the power of the ocean through the three pillars of fish, oceans, and people. As part of her role at Bumblebee, she oversaw uh, a team including employee engagement, partnerships, PR, and media relations. In her consumer-facing work, she spearheaded the award-winning packaging overhaul, developed the corporate sustainability platform, and executed foundational consumer segmentation research. And of course, we know her through friend of the pod, Jan Tharp, the CEO of Bumblebee, Renee has some exciting news. She's now recently the CMO of FIDA, which is an outcropping of the Game Changers ecosystem, and it is a plant-based nutrition company. So I'm really excited to get into that with her shortly. She has an MBA in international business and marketing from the University of South Carolina and a Bachelor of Science from Connecticut College in Psychology. Renee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be able to spend some time with you today. I always, I get to talk to such smart, interesting people, and I feel like there's so many directions that we can take this. You've worked at so many amazing companies. Um, you started your career at Coca-Cola and then went to Jamba Juice, which at the time was, a, was not a well-known company. It was a startup. What made you make that move? It's a, uh, it was, it was a little bit of gut intuition or gut instinct on that one, but uh, just a little bit of context. I was at Coca-Cola for a total of 12 years. I took a couple of years um, in there to go to business school. And every moment at Coke was great. And I would advocate, and I advocate to anyone I know who's leaving college and going to starting their careers, starting at a large company um, like a Coca-Cola or P&G, et cetera, you get such amazing foundational learning. You learn how to, you learn how to um, 
think, you learn how to strategize, you learn how to sell, you learn how to analyze data, you learn how to, what distribution is and manufacturing is about. Large companies give so much foundational um, learning and ground set for especially new people entering into the workforce. I, I had an amazing 12 years at Coke and I was able to learn and experience things that I would never have been able to do um, had it not been for that for those 12 years with Coke. So I loved every minute at Coke. At some point, I felt like I saw, and this, this will probably date me a little bit, but at Coke, it was so CSD or carbonated beverage oriented. And so into the machine of Coca-Cola, at this point in at the point in time that I was there, you began to see this outcropping or kind of this growth of what they, at the time, they called new age beverages. So everything from a Snapple to a Douala. And the company wasn't really acknowledging and seeing the energy that was happening, um, the consumer energy that was happening. They were looking for new, new things to drink, um, whether that was because it felt different to them, it was just something new, or whether it was for health and wellness reasons. And they weren't really giving it true acknowledgement. Um, and they weren't recognizing that there was this shift happening that that consumers were looking for healthier options. And... It was at that point that I felt like I, I wanted to go towards that growth energy. And I think that was the beginning of my understanding that I really liked to go where there's growth and energy and, you know, someplace where I could build. And then you couple that with Jamba Juice was so purpose-driven. I mean, um, Kirk Perrin, who was one of the founders and who's kind of the most um, outfacing founder, he often talked about saving the world one smoothie at a time. And his whole mission was just to get more fruits and vegetables into consumers' mouths. And he knew that the best way to do that was through something really delicious, like a Jamba Juice smoothie. So that's what, you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's what really drove me to Jamba Juice was this idea that I wanted to go towards energy. I wanted to be a part of something that was growing. And I wanted to be a part of something that felt a little bit bigger. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Jamba Juice really was ahead of the curve, I think, when I think, you know, is it typically classified as quick service restaurant or or fast yeah, casual? Yeah, you, you would call it, you call it um, order, pay, eat or fast casual is probably the new term. You know, nowadays, I think there's so many fast casual with a, a healthier spin on it. I think of all the energy Chipotle has put into their bowls and coming up with Whole30 and keto and so forth. You know, Jamba Juice, though, really was the pioneer, I feel like, in that space. Yeah. What was it like at that time kind of being on the forefront of that innovation? I, mean, I imagine, you know, there wasn't as much consumer awareness around it. So how did you approach product innovation, you know, at that time? I mean, the most interesting thing about Jamba Juice is that, you know, it clearly they were the products were delicious. Um, and the whole the whole strategy was about getting again, getting fruits and vegetables into people's mouths through through something yummy and delicious. What we found in that process and as the more research that we did is we found you had to really understand why were consumers coming to Jamba Juice. And we had two we had, what we found through research is that we had this kind of wide spectrum of consumers. You had some that were very much into my body is my temple. We kind of called them the purest. And this was done through a segmentation um, study that some people were very into having the purest ingredients. They wanted protein. They wanted um, matcha. They wanted ginseng. And they really were coming to Jamba Juice on a daily basis to get their, their daily serving of something healthy. 
And they were our heaviest user, but they were also the smallest percentage of users. Most people really just wanted to come for something really delicious that they thought was a lot healthier. So product innovation was really about how do you service both of those spectrums? And then the marketing's job was our marketing's job is really to move people along kind of the, what we often call the healthier continuum. So our innovation straddled both sides, people who are just look, looking for sweet thirst quencher and we wanted to make them feel good about the fact that they were having something that was more like a milkshake, but had vitamin C in it. And those people who were in there for a daily shot of wheatgrass or something that they really felt was important for their daily health. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I imagine extremely challenging from a menu creation perspective to service the people who are coming in every day, but also have enough of mainstream items and balancing the cost of some of those products. When I think about ingredients like ginseng and matcha, I think of a more premium ingredient, perhaps. Um, So was it ever challenging to balance those dynamics from a, a menu and product perspective? It's the biggest challenge, right? How do you um, how do you get someone to pay at that time six dollars for a six dollars for a protein berry workout, which had you know which, which was the most nutrient dense, um, and then also and also get them people to come in for three dollars and twenty five cents because they just they thought of it as kind of a slurpee, like an alternative to slurpee. So managing, um, you know, constantly balancing that and understanding your consumer and what they're willing to pay was a, you know, was a ongoing debate for us. And interesting, um, and this isn't necessarily about specifically about that health continuum, but one of the most interesting challenges at Jamba Juice is it was such a seasonal business, right? You're drinking something cold um, and it was seasonal and geographic. You're drinking something cold and... All of a sudden, it starts getting cold outside in October in Chicago, and your your business dies. And yet, you have it in the food service industry. You've got you, your real estate costs don't go down, your lease costs don't go down. You still and your people costs don't go down. You still have to pay that. So, how do you get people to come in in off season? And so, we did so much innovation around hot teas and other ways to get consumers to come in during kind of off season and. Each one of those was a it was a really challenging innovation project. And frankly, at that time, we were never successful at kind of mitigating seasonality through product innovation. We had to do it through geographic expansion into warmer markets. So you have to look at all sides of it. You have to look at managing costs and you have to also have to look at managing day parts and times of year as well. That's fascinating. And I think, you know, really wise that you realize you can innovate your way out of that challenge from a product perspective. You had to look at it from a geographic perspective. I will say though, I am that person who, when I lived on the East coast, I was still drinking iced coffee in December. I think there's a growing, I think there's a growing crop of us out there, but uh, I can see how it would have a, a holistic impact on the business. Yeah. You know, you then joined Sambazon, which was another startup. Can you talk a little bit about the product and category innovation that you drove there? I'm sure some some of our listeners are not as familiar with that company, perhaps. Yeah. So Samazon is a um it was it, it was the Samazon, it was started by um three founders, two two brothers and a friend who had discovered acai while they were in on a trip to um the rainforest in Brazil. And what they discovered is that the way the Brazilians eat um, they consume this, it grows on trees. It's a, in the rainforest, it's a berry that grows on trees. It's the only fruit that has no naturally occurring sugar, which is pretty interesting. Um, and they brought Sambazon or they brought acai to the United States. And 
through, and I, I joined uh, probably 15 years into their progression. And one of the biggest challenges as we got, as, as I was there and as they continue to grow, is that acai, you know, like many of these ingredients that come that people are commercializing or companies are commercializing, is it their biggest risk is it can become a commodity, right? It's basically, it's a fruit that you put in a vat and it was being sold in a kind of in a freezer bag and kind of a little freezer pack, um, pack. So it almost feels like strawberries. And so the biggest challenge was how do you not make this a commodity, how do you decommoditize it? And we tried to do as much of that through education around our fair trade process, because we were the only ones who had a fully, um, fully traceable, fully fair trade process. But that can only get you so far in a commoditized category. So innovation, getting people to try acai, in pre-made forms was our biggest, you know, was really the strategy. And it started with juices. Um, and juices is it was a very challenging business. Um, it cost a lot more to get juice to get a juice from um, the Amazon than it does to get from Bakersfield with carrots. And so price point was an issue. And then, you know, clearly shelf life and the fact that we had to put sugar in our products were was an issue as well. So we realized that juice wasn't going to be our only way of um, our only future growth. So we had to look at other ways to get people the delicious, you know, the delicious taste of acai. And really one of one of the, the greatest discoveries that we had is one, you had to really center on the bowl and how do you get the bowl, kind of the acai bowl. For, most people know acai through the acai bowl. How do you make it easier for our business to business customers to make the bowl? And the second um, strategy was how do we introduce acai in different forms and kind of really delicious forms to the consumer? So on the consumer side, we just realized that anything that was enrobed in chocolate, and really frankly, was going to be something that people would try. So we developed a whole line of acai um, frozen novelties that was just strictly about just getting people to try acai and experience acai in a different way. And then on the business to business side, one of the biggest challenges, so most Bowls are, SA bowls are sold through food service. It's, it's pretty, most people are challenged with making a bowl at home. But the food service operators were either, what was happening is we were getting commoditized out, so it became a price point war. But also the consistency of an acai bowl delivered at a, um, at a retailer was at a, at a food service outlet varied so much. So we created a machine that, that had incredibly consistent every single time. If almost if you think of a Slurpee machine, it had incredibly consistent and most pure acai bowls possible. And that was just a solution that we solved for our our operators and that really accelerated growth tremendously. That's amazing. I mean, these are the stories that I love because it's the ultimate of product and packaging innovation, right? Like you're like, we have this really great product, but it's it's become a commodity. We need to figure out a different way to deliver it. Um, you essentially had to innovate and create a machine to solve this problem for yourself, um, which I imagine had its own challenges because you're a food company. How did you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I would say the founder, Ryan Black, was a he was a master at this. I mean, he figured out, he found partnerships and he found people who knew how to take a machine and and revive could port the machine to the specific acai project and product. And it took a lot of iteration. And our first two or three tries didn't work. It was an expensive machine. We had to get the machine cost down, but it was really through partnerships that allowed us to get to the right machine. And then we had a great partnership with a um 
with a frozen company, Schwann's out of Minneapolis at the time, um, that helped us come up with the right formulation for the bag to go into the um, into the machine. So, you know, you can't solve these problems alone. You have to go to people who are experts. I mean, if, if Ryan had gone into his, his backyard or into his garage and tried to build this machine, he would never have made it. Um, but he really worked with the right suppliers. He worked with... We, um, Fortunately, we had our own store, so we allowed to, we had the store become a lab for us. But we also worked with other partners, and so it's just partnership. Um, I would say partnership is probably the greatest answer for those some of those challenges. I love that, and I, I mean, I've had your product as the product as a consumer, and it's unbelievable. I've actually had it in the bowl format, where they they I think they do pre made bowls now. Um, yeah, there's just yeah, so much. Pre, yeah, yeah. Tell tell me a little bit about that, because that's really that's really taking the machine part out of it, even. Yeah. So the pre-made bowl was, it was really a dream that um, we all had early on. As soon as I started, um, I think Ryan and the team had probably had the idea even before, but there were a couple components to it. One, which is, you know, we knew that we want, we had to be able to create something that felt as much like a food service experience as possible. Um, and we had to do it in a way that felt incredibly unique to our, to us. And so the most, for me, the most exciting part of that, um, of that entire innovation process is that we worked with a company to develop a unique kind of a highly, it's a hundred percent compostable bowl that was made out of a wheatgrass fiber and was able to, we designed it so you could actually fit it in your hand. It's even designed where your thumb would go exactly as you would hold a bowl. So you could walk or drive, but you shouldn't be driving and eating at the same time, but you could really be mobile and eat the bowl at the same time. And you also would be able to have a granola that a granola um, topping that flipped on top of it. So we um, worked with our partner to kind of come up with this proprietary unique bowl and and you know, work with again many suppliers, especially our suppliers in Brazil in Macapá, to to make sure that we had a process of um, filling the bowl, and it, it was top to bottom one of the most complex um, products that we that I've ever completely you know, ever been a part of, but also one of the most beautiful, I think. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and it, yeah, what's so impressive about it is how. Every part of that innovation stayed true to your core mission as a company. You talked about it, how fair trade was really important. You have something that was compostable. Yeah. You know, it yeah. really delivered like the convenience to the consumer. It's so hard to do all yeah. of that. And ha- at a price yeah. point where the company's feeling good about the margin, you know, I, I know you've talked a little bit about your relationship with finance teams. Um, how do you balance innovation with? you know, and, and amazing product innovation with making sure that your products are profitable. Yeah. So in, in this case, and um, in this case, what, what was um, amazing is that the CFO, especially with the CFO was almost the biggest proponent of doing this particular product launch, because I think we all knew that the greatest challenge to Sampazon was the commoditization of acai. And, you know, we'd had, we'd had some um, advisors come in and they taught someone had been a part of the um, Hershey experience or they, 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 we talked about the Hershey kiss and kind of the iconic, um, the iconic visual and, and experience of opening a Hershey kiss. And we really got grounded in this idea of we have to have a very iconic and proprietary experience. And so the um, CFO 
really, he bought into that idea and realized that to catapult to the next level, we had to create this proprietary experience. So it was really him buying into the importance of that, of the bowl, not just as a growth engine, but really as a brand engine. And once, once that was there, he solved, I would say that he solved half, at least 75% of the major challenges that came up. He was both the CFO and COO. So he was responsible for the operations as well. And so under making sure that you're aligned on your goals is always, it's the most important component of working with a finance partner. And I think, you know, they are the, they're the gateway to your investors. And so I think ensuring that we understand, you ensuring that you always understand what your investors want is, and then working with your finance partner to make sure that your innovation or marketing is achieving what your investors want is the, is the answer to that. I love the story about the Hershey kiss for a few reasons. Number one, because we encounter these challenges every day, right? Of balancing innovation and profitability and delighting customers. But to have a story like that, that just grounds you in what you're trying to do. And the Hershey kiss, as soon as you talked about it, I immediately thought about what it was like to open one and like the feelings I have around it because you're giving it like on Valentine's Day, there's the pink ones. And there's such, to your point, that's the brand halo that then allows you to to really continue to own a market that's that's highly commoditized, right? I mean, tr- you can get chocolate yeah. smidgens from any company these days, but the Hershey Kiss yeah. definitely stands out. You've talked a little bit about um, the triple bottom line. Can you explain for some of our listeners what that is and then how product and packaging teams should think about incorporating that into their day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, triple bottom line, I guess the new term would be considered stakeholder cap- stakeholder capitalism. It's kind of the evolved term of um, triple bottom line, which is just ensuring that you're you're not only servicing your financial stakeholders that you're servicing um, or your shareholders that you're servicing, those people who work for you, those people who are in the field, so it's, um, you're servicing the that you're aware of the environment. So it's holding yourself accountable to, in this case, people, product, and planet. That, that's what really attracted me to Samazon. It felt like um, the next level of health and wellness, which is not just personal health and wellness, but health and wellness for um, the consumer, but also for the planet and for the, you know, for the people who are helping bring your product to life. That, that's what Samazon was. As it relates to packaging and, you know, packaging and product, this is, a, I, to me, this is a really big challenge in the, in not just the health and wellness space, but the CPG space in general, which is you can't do everything, right? I think there's so many companies out there who are trying to be perfect on every level. And it's it's almost impossible. You can't be 100% fair trade, 100% delicious, 100% organic, and 100% compostable, and still, and no, oh, by the way, affordable and accessible. I mean, you're, it's, it's just, you're, it's too many things to hit on. And so I think it's com- the biggest challenge for companies is, is to decide based on what you're bringing to market, where are the areas that you have the greatest opportunity to, to help people or the greatest opportunity to kind of to negate your impact and pick that, that those one or two things. So for example, if you take those soda companies, you know, Coca-Cola to the world, for them, clearly plastic is a really big challenge, you know, plastic and sugar, probably plastic and sugar. And so they're spending a lot of their, they're spending a ton of time working on the plastics issue, whether it's through adding, you know, increasing recycling or reducing the amount of plastics they're using. For other companies um, at, at Bumblebee, it was, you know, we had 
the biggest opportunity for Bumblebee was to one to ensure that we were um, continuing to fish sustainably. The second was how do you make sure and, and managing our stocks and not really and not pulling too much from the ocean. You know, it's, an, it's a company that extracts from the ocean, but how do you extract at the right levels to keep the ecosystem healthy? The second was how do you ensure the health of the ocean by stopping plastic from going into the ocean through kind of ghost gear or packaging? And the third was really around people and how do you enhance the practices of people in the fishing industry? And so those were the three kind of areas that we focused on, but we couldn't focus on everything, right? We couldn't focus on, even though we have carbon emission goals, it couldn't be the major thing that we were, that we were driving against. So I think sometimes you just have to pick and identify where should you, where should you really focus your time as a company? I love that. I think that's so smart. It's interesting because at Specrate, one of the challenges that you know we work with a lot of companies that have sustainability goals, and a lot of them need to do reporting and compliance now. So I think about the extended producer responsibility laws and regulations happening in Europe, where they have to disclose how much packaging waste they're putting into the the waste right. stream. And what's interesting is typically we have people come to us and they panic and they're like, "We don't have any of this data." It with all of our suppliers, and, and we give them similar advice, which is. We'll start with the packaging elements that are the most problematic or have the biggest opportunity. Like, don't worry about digitizing all of your specifications at once. Focus on maybe right. the corrugated specs first and break right. it down to a smaller problem because then you start to get momentum as well and learnings that help you, you know, expand to other areas of your product. And I love that idea of taking a similar approach. I just think it makes a lot of sense. People, are, to your point, there's such an all or nothing feeling yeah. of sustainability and and it's almost paralyzing if if we all approach it that way. It is it is. And I also think, you know, consumers have to be consumers and and not for profits or NGOs have got to be patient. I mean, it's like it took well, let's say decades, sometimes more than decades, maybe you know, a century to get us to a place um, that hasn't been great for the planet. It's going to take us time to unwind some of those practices. So as long as you believe that people are acting in good faith, you've got to give them time. It takes a lot of time to change the fishing industry, right? It's not going to happen overnight. And so I, I, do, I do, one of the places where I get frustrated is I don't think the there's much patience for companies, even though companies are, many companies, not all, are very genuine in their attempt to, to do the right thing. It just takes time. Yeah, it's a good point. We're not going to, I love that idea of like, we took us, you know, decades to create the problem. It's not going to take us days to to unwind that. You were yeah. most recently at Bumblebee where you worked on an award-winning packaging overhaul. Can you walk us a little bit through that process and, and the reason and some of the challenges and wins that came out of that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I came straight from Sambazon, which was small, nimble, pretty quick to Bumblebee, which um, was, was much larger. And pretty traditional. And one of the things in the shelf stable tuna space is that the consumers are aging and they're aging out at a pretty rapid pace. And, and the new consumers are not being introduced into the category. And part of that is like what's happening on shelf that you know, we had at the time that I came in, we were still using the actually a bumblebee um, on the packaging, which 
makes no which makes no sense. I mean, I think for um, those consumers who were accustomed to us and were in their kind of late seventies, eighties, who had grow, who had grown up with Bumblebee, that made a lot of sense. But to bring a new consumer in, Bumblebee on package didn't make any sense. It also felt slightly, it felt very dated. So our objective was. How do you create? How do you create change on the shelf and break out of all that clutter um, through packaging? And we we really attacked our two biggest packages, which is two um, most prominent packages, which is the pouch and a can. And we decided to start with we decided how far were we willing to change in each one of those packages. So for the can, which is pretty a, an aging consumer, we we decided on a scale of one to 10, 10 being greatest change and one being no change at all. We we probably were willing to go to a two or three on the can. Whereas on the pouch, which was a much younger consumer, we decided to go all the way to an eight. We wanted a dramatic change. And so that was a really, that was a grounding for us. Um, it gave us some permission to go pretty far in some of our packaging. And, and the package that, that won the award was the pouch. We really just decided to look at what was happening in the industry in terms of people were not just in industry, just in food, people were cleaning up what was on shelf. They weren't as prescriptive, showing food shots. It was popping out with colors. So we kind of followed what some of the trends were and we brought some of those trends into the um, into the shelf stable tuna aisle. And, and the result was award-winning packaging. Since then, we've made a couple of changes just because we, we've recognized, you know, you learn, you test and learn. We recognize we need a little bit more consistency from the various packages. And so it felt more like a brand. And so we've made some modifications from then. But the fun part about that particular packaging change is we were operating like a small company within a big company. And we allowed ourselves to have a little bit of a nimble mindset. And we went really fast. I mean, we made a packaging, we did the packaging change within six months of being, of my starting there. And that was, it's quick for a company like that. I love that. I mean, one of the tips, you know, I always want to give our listeners like what's actionable feedback you can take back to your companies. I love that idea of aligning on how much are we willing to change? Is it a two or an eight? And because that really, you know, we've talked about like everyone's opinion of innovation or change is different. So being able to kind of ground everyone and have everyone be on the same page of the gravity of what you're trying to do is just so important, especially to go fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. That's exactly what allowed us to go fast is to get everyone comfortable with the change. And and then you just go, you know, it's just, sometimes you just, and I think one of the things that company, large companies have a challenge with is making big moves and bold moves because it's scary, right? You've got a billion dollar business or $10 billion business and any tweak to change that can be a really scary tweak. Yeah, absolutely. You're getting back into the more nimble stage company. Can you yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about FIDA and, and what attracted you to that mission? Yeah, well, um, it's funny. So I'm now at a company, I'm employee number, I think we've been talking about this. I'm employee number four, we're pre-revenue. So I've gone from a relatively you know, mid-sized company down to just we don't make any money. We just spend money at this point. Uh, what attracted to me? What attracted me to it were probably two things. One, I I think I I discovered that I'm at least at this point in my life I really I'm a small company person, um, and I think I'm a small company person because I just I like to build. I like to build things, um, and small companies, especially at this phase, um, allow me to do that. 
So that, and that's just me. Not everyone's a small company person. I just, that's where I am in my life. Um, and then the second piece was, it came out of this movie called The Game Changers documentary. It was a, a, a documentary that really broke um, some of the preconceived notions around what plant-based eating is and veganism is and, and kind of poked a little bit at the stereotypes of, you know, in order to be strong, in order to be a male, you have to eat meat. Um, and it really from, came at it from very much a nutrition perspective. And I thought the framing and the unexpected nature of that documentary was fascinating. And so when I, someone called me to talk to me about the, about the opportunity, the idea of creating a brand with that as a foundation was pretty fascinating to me. And then as I got to know the founder or kind of the protagonist in the movie, James, you listen to this guy and he's one of the most unexpected human beings. I mean, he's incredibly smart. He was also a UFC fighter. So those two things you don't always think about. This guy is probably the smartest guy I've ever met. His ability to process information. So the fact that he was a fighter and is unbelievably smart, and I'm not trying to be insulting to fighters, but that combination was unexpected. And then, um, you know, he should say, he's a really passionate guy about trying to protect the earth. And one of the greatest ways you can protect the earth is by getting more people to eat more plants and less meat, not all or nothing, he says, but all or something. And so it was that mission and that purpose that really attracted me to, um, attracted me to come to FIDA. Well, we're really excited to learn more about what you guys are doing as that evolves. When you look to the future, I mean, you've been you know, in this industry and have worked at so many impressive companies, have seen so much innovation and been part of it. What excites you most about the future of, of CPG and food, especially? I mean, what excites me is um, how much the big companies who really have most of the power are are committed to scale, are committed to scaling new ways of bringing ingredients to market, new ways of getting people to be healthier. I mean, it's very clear that we have to have that food is, you know, people are thinking of food as medicine. And the idea that these big companies are seeing whether, you know, whatever their motivation is, whether it's purely altruistic or because they see um, money in, in that move, that comp- you're seeing companies move to scale. And I think that that's very exciting. Um, Cause it's really the only, there's only so much a Sambazon can do. You need, in terms of like protecting the rainforest, you, you really need the big companies to jump on board and help um, with yeah. those types of those types of ingredients, et cetera. So oh, that, that. that's what excites me the most. Yeah, that's a great one. So we're going to close out with my favorite segment, which is a few rapid fire questions. The first is, what's your favorite product right now? Okay, so I have two. One is a um, food product. So I'm obsessed with anything for Sigmatic. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but Four Sigmatic is a plant-based kind of, I think they just do predominantly powders, but I use their focus powder in my coffee every morning. And I also use their um, hot chocolate. They have a chill hot chocolate and an energy hot chocolate. So I'm I'm obsessed with those. And then my husband just bought a plunge, which is like this, this bathtub, a freezing cold bathtub that you can hop in at 40 degrees or 35 degrees and just sit in to reduce inflammation. And I'm obsessed with that as well. So oh, that's those awesome. are my two favorite products right now. Yeah. I love those. I'm going to have to look at the, into the plunge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what packaging yeah. trend are you most excited about right now? I'm excited and nervous about it, to be honest. Is I, I do like that you're seeing a lot of people move to pouches. My challenge with pouches is because of their layered nature, they're actually not as recycled. They're, they're 
through that you can't recycle them. But I also know there's a lot of innovation going into creating more recyclable pouches. So it's kind of a double edged on that one, which is I like seeking seeing people move away from from some of these harder plastics, but but you know, pouches need some work. Yeah, absolutely. We typically end with kill keeper change where I give you a list of three random products and have you decide okay. to kill one, keep one, or change one. Unfortunately, I'm not in my office. Uh, so I can't, I can't pull them out of, but I'm debating if I should give you three products that you've worked on and make you, so I, I think I'm going to give you original Coke. I'll give you original Coke. I'll give you, um, an acai bowl. And then I'm going to give you the, um, the bumblebee snack pack on the run or the protein pack on the run. Um, oh my God. That's so, unf- that's so unfair. I know. I'm really um, sorry. The original Coke. I mean, I think. I'd probably have to kill it because I'm just so anti-sugar. The acai bowl I'm going to keep because it's just perfect. And the change, I would change the snack on the run to, um, I'd probably change the flavors and snack on the run. I'd get rid of the plastic fork, <laughs> put the plastic fork in there. I'd make the crackers a little bit better. So there's some small changes I'd make to that one, but it's a pretty good product. I appreciate it. Jan, if you're listening, uh, I would love a gluten-free, <laughs> I'd love a gluten-free cracker. Yeah. Um, yeah, you need a gluten-free cracker. But, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll listen back to this in six months and see if, uh, if there's a new product in the market. Well, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you and, and the FIDA especially since it's such an emerging brand? Well, I can't tell you how to fight uh, to follow FIDA yet because we're not even on social, we're not on LinkedIn. Um, but sometime around August, you'll be able to follow FIDA. It's spelled F-Y-T-A. Um, it actually stands for it's it, it's a great name because it's it's um it's Greek for plant, but also because James was a FIDA. It sounds like FIDA. So I we really like the the play on words on that one. So look for that sometime, you know, it's popping up sometime in August and September. And for me, just standard on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all of your learnings with our audience. And for those listening, if you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, Renee. Thank you, Laura. Really appreciate it. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specrite.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.